Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, good friends. Sorry to lay that on you. Uh, but anyway, we are in Matthew chapter 16. We left off in verse 20. We finished up verse 20. So today we'll pick up right where we left off. And uh, last week, I know we only looked at four or five verses. It was a short section of scripture. Today, we're going to look at a similar short portion of scripture. But last week, the focus, if you will, of our study was that very important question that Jesus asks, which is, who do you say that I am? Again, as I said, at that particular time, the door to eternity swings upon, hinges upon your answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, if like Peter, your response is that he is God in the flesh, sent from heaven as the long-awaited Messiah to save people from their sins, then in your case, the door swings open. And so to speak, the words would be spoken, enter into the joy of the Lord. If, on the other hand, you've drawn the conclusion and you're content to conclude that Jesus is just a good man or a great teacher or a mighty prophet or some kind of a guru, anything but God in the flesh, then the Scripture makes very clear that the door to salvation remains locked for you. So again, this is, and this is why, it is the most important question that anyone could ever ask. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. Again, your eternity hinges upon that answer. And as we were closing last week, after looking at that, Peter, I think representing the whole group of people, says, we think you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, very good, in a sense. Notice though, verse 20, it says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one of this or to tell no one that he's Christ. And it seems, again, the instruction seems so peculiar to me because Jesus' entire ministry was building up to this point where his disciples actually knew who he was and why he had come to this earth. And now that they were certain of that, one would expect them to say, now go tell everybody that. And the reality is he says, don't tell anybody that. And we spent some time considering this. And again, the, the reason why is because Jesus' focus from this point, another place who would say that Jesus set his face like a stone, like a rock for the cross. Jesus' focus now, his ministry now, is to go to the cross. And he doesn't need, if you will, to get in any more fights with the religious leaders who have already rejected him. And he really doesn't need to gather more and more disciples around him. What he needs to do is go to the cross. And he sets his face, if it were, as it were, for that. Which brings us now to the point of where we left off, verse 21. Notice this kind of transition now to this new purpose of ministry. Starting in verse 21, it says, From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So notice in verse 21 there, those, those three words, it says, from that time. So from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go, as it says there in the verse, to Jerusalem, be killed, and then on the third day be raised. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has made reference to the fact that he would need to be executed by the religious leaders. We see example of it in John chapter 8. But this is the first time where Jesus so clearly 
and without any doubt as to what do you think he could mean by that, says that he would have to go and that he would be executed. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus is in an encounter with a particular group of self-righteous Jewish people, and he told them that they would die in their sins. I don't know if anybody ever told you that, but typically your response is, hey, who are you to talk to me like that? Well, that's what they said to him. Who are you to tell us that we would die in our sins? And Jesus then explained who he was and how he came from his father, but it seemed as if it fell on confused ears. They didn't quite understand what he meant. What he said to them is, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am that I am he. Now, for you and I looking back, that makes perfect sense. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross when he says, when I'm lifted up on that cross, everyone's going to know I'll draw all men to myself. But they didn't understand that. In their mind, it could have simply been, when I'm lifted up on a throne, then you'll know who I am. And so they didn't quite get it. So Jesus had referenced his execution, coming execution, but now he does so in a very clear way, in such a clear fashion. He says in verse 21, I will go to Jerusalem... I will suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, uh, and the elders. And that is the group of men that make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And then he says uh, that he would be killed and on the third day raised. So if they had missed the subtle reference before, they certainly weren't going to miss it this time. And we know that that's the case because notice what Peter does. Peter speaks up for the group, verse 22. And it says, now Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So taking the Lord aside, you know, he doesn't want to embarrass the Lord in front of everybody. Taking the Lord aside, he whispers sort of to the Lord, Lord, you really shouldn't talk that way. That's never going to happen to you. You know that we would never let that happen to you, Lord. And both here and in Mark tell us that Peter actually rebukes the Lord for this. Peter's convinced he's right. Jesus is wrong. And he could, rebukes him for making such a statement. And I believe, I, I think we would probably all agree, Peter probably with all of his heart is thinking, I am really helping the Lord out here. You know, he's, there's no like negative here in Peter. Right? He's convinced, you know what, I'm doing something that the Lord needs me to do. Maybe he even thought the Lord would commend him. The Lord would say, Peter, thanks, buddy. I wish everybody else you know, was willing to step up to the plate like you do. I just need more guys like you in my life. Maybe Peter thought something like that. But notice, instead of a commendation, notice he gets a very different response from the Lord in verse 23. It says, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh my. He says, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So remember last week we looked at this idea that some people thought Peter was the first pope. And the infallibility of the Pope, well, I jotted down so much for the infallibility of Pope Peter. Because Jesus here not only tells him he's wrong, but he calls him Satan. Have you ever been called Satan? I mean, people call me names and things like that. But that's a tough one, to actually be called Satan. Josh was called Satan while he was street witnessing. Um, but he's not Satan. He's not. He's a good man. We like Josh. <laughs> Anyhow, if you notice in verse 22... Notice what it says there. In verse 22, it says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus, to tell him he was wrong here. And it's as if Jesus interrupts. So he says, no, Lord, this is that. Stop. I know where you're going with this, Jesus says, but you're not going there. I'm not going to let you go there. Pe Josh, or excuse me, Peter begins to rebuke the Lord. Not Josh. Peter, he <laughs> begins to rebuke the Lord. 
by saying, far be it from you, it shall never happen to you. But the Lord stops him in his tracks and he says, get behind me, Satan. Tough words. Get behind me, Satan. Lord, just a moment ago, I was Simon Barjona, blessed are thee. Now I'm get behind me, Satan. You know, how do we go from that place to this one? Is the Lord overreacting a bit here, perhaps? I, I certainly don't think the Lord is overreacting. Jesus reacts the way that he does, in a very, very strong way, but he reacts the way that he does because the suggestion of Peter that Jesus is going to the cross should never happen or that Peter himself would actually do what was necessary to keep Jesus from going to the cross is the furthest possible thing from the will of God. And so Jesus is not overreacting here. Peter's suggestion is the furthest possible thing from the will of God because Jesus had come into this world to go to the cross. And from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life, Satan had been trying to stop that. And so we see that first example perhaps there where uh, Herod decides he's going to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's the first attempt, if you will, of Satan to stop Christ from fulfilling his mission. We see uh, some 30 years later when Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted, that Satan comes along and tries to distract him and get him off of mission. Just bow your knee to me, and you can have all this world. Just bow your knee to me, get him off of mission. And so Jesus here is not overreacting when he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, in saying this, Jesus both is and isn't talking to, uh, to Peter. He's primarily rebuking Satan for one more attempt to get him off mission and the way in which he planted this thought in Peter's mind. That's, he's primarily rebu rebuking him, but he's also rebuking Peter in this process as well when he says this, get behind me, Satan. And I don't think Peter is deliberately deciding he's going to reject the will of God. You know what? I heard the will. You have to go to the cross, but I don't like it, so forget it. I don't think Peter is trying to deliberately decide to reject the will of God and instead embrace the will of Satan. Again, I suspect he feels very much like he's helping the Lord out here. The reality is this, though. His suggestion is very much opposed to the will of God. And so if you look back up at verse 21, notice again Jesus' words. He said that he must go to Jerusalem. To go to Jerusalem... And to suffer on a cross and die for our sins and be raised three days later was the very reason why he had come to, to, come to this earth. He became a man to do this particular thing. He must go to Jerusalem. If you look through the Old Testament, this work of his on the cross, it was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. The entire temple system, prior to that, the entire tabernacle system, painted the picture of the inadequacy of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin and that there was a need for a greater sacrifice. It's all foreshadowing and looking forward to him. That was the work told and retold by the Old Testament prophets. And I think nowhere perhaps says it maybe more clearly for us than Isaiah chapter 53. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. It's to your left. It's in the Old Testament. It's kind of in the middle of your Bibles. I suspect you, many of you know that. But I want to read kind of a lengthy portion of Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to see this. Because again, just like the Old Testament foreshadowed the coming of Christ and the work of Christ, the prophets spoke about the coming of Christ and the work of Christ. And so starting in Isaiah 53, it says, Now surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That doesn't make any sense. We sinned. We've gone astray, and yet the iniquities were laid on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened on his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the, sp the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. For the transgressors. How clear, isn't it? There had to be a more perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is that sacrifice. The writer to the book of Hebrews will comment on this. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, And every priest stands daily at his surface, service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so, despite the fact that this is the very reason why Jesus came to fulfill the Scripture, Peter, again, no doubt, with the best of intentions, decides to intervene and instead institute his plan. God's plan was clearly written, but Peter now decides he's going to institute his plan, and he says to the Lord, far be it from you, Lord, this thing should never happen to you. He got off track in his thinking. And Jesus tells us how he gets off track. He says to him in verse 23, after saying, get behind me, Satan, after saying, you're hindering the work that God's called me to do. Do you think in his flesh there was ever this time where Jesus said, I don't want to go to the cross? Well, we know that is the case. He prayed that. Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup away. And so any suggestion, you don't have to go to the cross. Do you think your heart would sort of leap at that in, in human terms, saying, oh, I like that idea. What is the other way? And so he's being a hindrance to the Lord. But notice Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter, no doubt, excellent intentions, wanted to protect the Lord, wanted to protect his friend from any harm. But those intentions were not God's intentions. God's intentions were very different from Peter. Peter in the setting of his mind on the things of man, set himself in direct opposition to the things of God. And as such, he was dangerously at risk of becoming a hindrance to the Lord and unwittingly tempting the Lord 
to go off mission and abandon the very reason for which he had come. And so Jesus, as we said, abruptly stops him from doing so. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, when he says, get behind me, Satan, Jesus is not implying that, Sa- that Peter has become demon-possessed or possessed by Satan and dwelt by Satan or something like that. He's simply saying, Peter, you're being used as a tool of the devil when you say the things that you say, when you, if you will, without even knowing, tempt me to get off mission. And I think there's a lesson for you and I in this. Certainly Christ has already gone to the cross, and so we can't prevent him from doing so. But I do think it's possible that each of us, with the best of intentions and sincere desire to protect our loved ones from harm, may unwittingly be being used by Satan to tempt others to get off of their God-given mission. Not only possible, I think it is very, very likely that it could be happening. So let me give you some examples. Parents. I think as parents, you know, we love our kids. We want good things for our kids. We want our kids to be safe and all those sorts of things. But I think we need to be real real careful that as parents we're not unwittingly being used by the enemy to sidetrack our kids from what the Lord might be calling them to do. Friends, are you sure the Lord's not calling your brother or sister into the f- in the faith to do that which seems practically very foolish to do. I believe in wisdom. I believe there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But I also believe the Lord speaks into people's heart. And I believe the Lord calls us to do things that are foolish and ridiculous in world standards at times. And so I want to be very careful when a friend in the faith comes to me and says, I really feel the Lord's leading in this way. I want to be very careful before I tell him that's not the Lord leading in that particular way. And yet oftentimes, because we love our friend, we want good things for our friend, we want them to be safe or whatever it may be, we may try to dissuade them from answering the call of the Lord. Does this make sense? Can you, can you picture scenarios where how this fits into your life? We need to be very careful that we're not, if you will, being like Peter in those instances, a hindrance to the work of the Lord in that particular person's life. Are you sure that it's the Lord that's leading you to try and dissuade that person from that? And you better make sure, because otherwise you too may hear, get behind me, Satan. Now, I suspect this interaction must have floored the disciples. Because Jesus had just told them that he would suffer many things at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the ruling body of of Israel, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised back to life. And I am quite certain they, they didn't even hear those last words, raised back to life. They heard, betrayed, go to Jerusalem, betrayed, on trial, killed, and every, everything just stopped and went silent at that point, even though Jesus' sentence continued about being raised back to life because they were too blown away by the opening words. Now, they would eventually put all the pieces together. Luke tells us, actually, that they do. It was on the day of the resurrection, Luke tells us, that as the two angels were there, that the angel declared this, It said, now the men, that is the angel, said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Notice, and then they remembered his words. Then they remembered that he would be raised. But right now it seems that they're just too shell-shocked by this revelation to really adequately process all of this. And I wonder, based on Jesus' next words, if it's written all over their face that they are shell-shocked. Because Jesus seems to address this in his next set of words, starting in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, I wonder if there's this sense of bewilderment on each of these guys' faces in response to what just happened. Jesus said, I'm, I have to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me and kill me, and I'll be raised again on the third day. And I wonder if the disciples are thinking, wait a minute. If you know they're going to do this to you there, why would you even go there? It doesn't make any sense. Logically, it's a foolish thing to do. Stay away. We can do plenty of ministry up here in, in the Galilee region. Jesus, it doesn't make any sense that you would forfeit your life in this particular way. Well, perhaps that's what the disciples are thinking, and perhaps that's what leads Jesus to say what he does say. He says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So once again, Jesus is now faced with a teachable moment. And Jesus makes it clear that there are more important things in life than saving your own life. Did you catch that? Because some of you are just looking at me. like That's like, what? That's shocking statement. There are more important things in life than saving your own life. Jesus makes clear. And he'll go on and he'll talk about that in verse 25. But he begins by pointing out the first and foremost thing of a disciple of his is to follow me. What's more important than saving your own life? Following him. And so he says to him there, if anyone would come after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, some objections might be, but Lord, what if it's not safe? And I think Jesus would respond to that. It very well may not be safe. But who said anything about being safe? Jesus is making it clear that the idea that saving my life is my first and only priority is incorrect thinking. It wasn't the way he thought about his life and mission, and neither it is, the way, is it the way that you or I, as his followers, should think about our mission. Our first and foremost priority should not be whether or not we are safe, and our first and foremost priority should not be whether we will be happy, or whether we will be comfortable, or whether this will be good for me, and if so, then I'll do it. But that our first and foremost priority as a follower of Christ is simply this. Is this where he's leading me? And Jesus says there, he adds, take up your cross and follow me. If you are going to have any success in your effort to live in such a way that the first and foremost priority of your life is to go where he leads, then there is one thing that you simply must do. There's one thing his disciples simply must do, and that is take up their cross and follow him. Now the disciples immediately know what that means. I think in our day, we may miss the impact of Jesus' words. In that day, they knew very well what the cross was because they were lining the streets of Israel with the crosses. The cross was not something that was spoken about in polite company. The cross was a cruel and horrific means of dying. 
the cross was designed as much to send a message to those not on the cross as to actually execute the one who was on the cross. The cross was a horrible way to die. And Jesus wasn't the only person, and the two guys that were with him weren't the only people to die on a cross. Thousands and tens of thousands of people were executed on a cross by the Roman government. And so these guys knew what the cross was, and they knew what the cross was for. We in our day, and I think rightfully so, we adorn our buildings with crosses. We wear emblems of them around our neck. Some of us that are a little crazy, we emblazon our bodies with tattoos of them and things like that. No offense, Brother Josh. (laughs) These first century disciples would have never done that. And the reason why is because they did everything they could to put the cross out of their mind, not to bring it in. Hey, guys, on the way home from, you know, you're having dinner. On the way home from work today, I, I saw three people crucified. You would never bring a conversation like that up. Maybe if the person's face was a little down or whatever, someone would say, what's wrong, honey? Well, on the way home from work today, I saw three people die on a cross. You see, it wasn't a positive thing at all. It was an implement of death. And the disciples know immediately what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross. And in fact, in light of the fact that he just said that he was going to go be executed, they are probably thinking, this means that we are going to have to go be executed as well when he says, take up your cross. You would carry your own cross to your execution. Usually there'd be the, the bar that goes up and down um, would already be in the ground, and you would carry the cross beam yourself to your execution. And so when he says, take up your cross, they may have assumed that meant they themselves were going to have to be executed. But Jesus presents this option before them. Come, deny yourself, take up your implement of death, and follow me. And if I was in that crowd, my honest response to the Lord would have been this. Lord, I'm not sure that that interests me. And Jesus, I think, would respond, well, that's the term of the agreement. Take it or leave it. That's what it means to be my disciple. And if you want to live in such a way where your first and foremost priority is not whether or not you're going to be safe or you're going to be happy or you're going to be comfortable, or whether this will be good for you, then you have to live in such a way where you learn to deny yourself and all of your default desires. My default desire is Greg. That's my default desire. That's who I think of first when I make any decision. And as a follower of Christ, I need to teach myself, I need to learn to develop, if you will, the habit and rely on him for the strength to put aside my default desire and instead come come running after him. Now, a lot of times we hear people say things like, well, I guess this is just the cross that I bear. And typically that applies to, I have an annoying little brother. Well, it's just the cross that I bear. Or I have some sickness or something that's chronic and is never going to go away. I guess that's just the cross that I need to bear. But cross-bearing is not dealing with some irritation in our life with a good attitude. That's not what is really meant by the idea of cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is the deliberate decision to put my will and my preferences aside and to live for Him. It's the, it's the deliberate decision to live an of others-centered life. Now, here's a question for you. Which of Jesus' disciples are called to a life like that? Every one of us. Every one of us is called to a life like that. And I think what we have done in the church in 
the 2,000 years since Jesus gave these words, I think we have developed in our thinking that there are some people, some Christians, super Christians, missionary-type Christians, pastor-type Christians that are called to that lifestyle. And I'm not quite sure I want to go there, so I won't become a missionary, I won't become a pastor. But the reality is that every one of us is called to this. Every one of us is called to take up our cross. Now, we might hear that, and we might get all hippie, and we might say, whoa, Lord, that's heavy. I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know why that came into my mind, but that's the only way I thought of it was, Lord, that's just heavy. And then I thought, that's very hippie-ish. <laughs> the reality is this. You do not have it in yourself to live that way. In your own strength and in your own willpower, you don't have it. But he does, the Scripture makes it very clear, he promises the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that you might live that way. Romans chapter 8 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So those words, they apply to you and I just as they applied to these disciples, as they applied to Paul 2,000 years ago. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's the standard for what it means to be His follower. And it hasn't changed and it hasn't been modified, it hasn't been lessened, and it hasn't been softened. Now here's a statement that theologically, it's kind of hard for me to say because I feel like I can make arguments against it right from the start. I'll throw it out there, you deal with it, over whatever you do after you leave here with your friends. But if you want salvation, the cost is your life. If you want salvation, this is the this is what he puts out there. This is what it means to be saved. He went to a cross and gave his life. You take up your cross and give your life. How's that make you feel? Warm and fuzzy? Probably not. I know how it makes you feel because it makes me feel the same way. My flesh, my natural man, rebels against that message. I don't like to hear that message. It's my life, Lord. This is my life. I get to make the decisions. I'll give you some, Lord. And maybe even as I grow a little older, I'll give you even a little more. But I'm keeping back for myself what I want, Lord, and I'll make the decision. This is my life. My natural man rebels against that. And I think Jesus perhaps anticipates that a bit. If you look at verse 25, he says, oh yeah? I don't know if he had an attitude like I did. But he says, he says whoever loses his life, or excuse me, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I was struck by this statement, both in my studies and in that, that book that uh, a group of us were reading, um, The Insanity of God. Great book if you haven't read it. Please work it into your life. Read it sometime. You missed the book discussion group, but read the book. But I was struck by this statement. It says this, something like this. You cannot be raised unless you first die. And you cannot walk in the resurrected power of Christ unless you have first been crucified with Christ. There would be no resurrection if Christ wasn't first crucified. And the same is true in our life. There will be no resurrected life if there is not a crucified life. Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the irony of the Christian walk. We think that the only true way 
to be happy, to have peace, and to live a life to the fullest if we are is if we are vigilant for looking out for number one. The only way that I can truly be happy, truly at peace, truly make sure my life goes where my life is going to go is if I vigilantly look out for number one. But the reality, Jesus says, just the opposite. That the more we seek to live for ourselves, the more miserable we actually become. Because we were created as human beings and we were not designed to be self-consumed individuals. We were designed to be in relationship with God and with other people. And it's only as we lay down our lives on behalf of others that we truly discover what life really is. And there are two great hindrances for, to you doing that. Both of them involve yourself, and that's why you need to put yourself to death. Jesus says the first great hindrance is a life consumed by looking out for number one. Jesus says the second great hindrance, it's in verse 26, it's the endless race to gain the whole world. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it mean then? What's that mean? Gain the whole world. Gain all the wealth of the world? All the power of the world? Is that what that means? All the prestige? All the influence? All the popularity? I would suggest it's all those things and more, and it's all those things combined. And Jesus was faced with that very same temptation as I alluded to earlier in the study. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is out in the wilderness, he's being... He's hasn't eaten for 40 days the scripture says he's hungry such an understatement in the scripture but the, the point the word is hungry to the point of death if he doesn't eat now he's not going to make it and satan comes along and tempts him and he takes him up on a high mountain and we go there when we're in israel to what they believe is the mount of temptation and you can see the whole world from there it seems like and there up on top of that mountain satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory so it's both physical and spiritual, it seems. And he says to him, all of these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus instead, the scripture says, chooses a life of obedience to his father. Ask anyone with wealth or with power or with influence, how much of those things is enough? And almost inevitably, the answer will come back just a little bit more of those things. And so we chase and we chase and we chase and we try to finally grab a hold of that will at last make us content only to discover that when we get it, it doesn't. And Jesus warns us as his disciples not to throw our lives away, chasing after things and trying to preserve things that will never bring us peace and the satisfaction that we're longing for. The most important thing that every one of us can possess, so to speak, is our soul. And what could we possibly be given in return for our souls? What trade could we make that would lead us to say, you know what, that, that was worth it. That was worth trading my soul away for. What could we possibly be given that would lead us to say that? Would it be being a millionaire? Being a billionaire, as people are in our day, would that be worth it? Would it be worth it if we have all the latest toys and a guy and a girl on each arm, depending on who we are, would those things be worth trading our soul for? Would it be worth it living a life of comfort where all we really have to do is think about 
nobody else but ourselves, would that be worth trading your soul for? What should a man give in return for his soul? The answer is, I hope you agree with me, the answer is absolutely nothing. And yet I wonder how often we do that exact thing. Jesus values the soul of man very much. So much so that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, and that he would be killed on behalf of others. How much do you value your own soul? Jesus values your soul very much. How much do you value your own soul? And what are you giving in exchange for your soul? And have you even taken that question into consideration as you go about your daily life? It's so easy to get distracted, to get sidetracked, to take our eyes off of the things that are eternal and to be drawn away by the allure of the, temple, uh, the temporal. And so I believe Jesus, realizing that, he, sa- he reminds us in verse 27 of the eternal. And he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. When Jesus returns in glory, will it really matter how popular we were, or how many cars we had, or how big our bank account was, or how many houses that we had. Will any of that matter at all? In a moment, in that moment, when he returns, everything will be immediately put into perspective. When the Son of Man, as it says, comes in his glory, the world will immediately know just how valuable their soul actually was. And sadly, the time to get right with the Lord will have been lost. And to my brothers and my sisters in the faith, we were created, and you know it, we were created for more than the temporal comforts and pleasures of this life. But again, as I said earlier, we were created to be in right relationship with God and with others. And to do that, we must lay down our lives and follow after Him. And I think I'll, I'll be the first to admit to you, these are heavy words this morning. I think these are perhaps the heaviest words that we as followers of Christ can hear. Because Jesus makes it unequivocally clear that there are specific requirements of anyone that wishes to be a disciple of Christ. We must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross, and we must follow after Him wherever He goes. Will you get this right all the time? Very doubtful that you will get this right all the time. But can I say this in love? You better get this right some of the time. Or I think we could very honestly question whether you are even in the faith. Amen? (laughs) Seek the Lord, will you? I am for my life, certainly so, and I'd encourage you to do so as well. Seek the Lord in this matter and make sure you are where you need to be in your relationship with him. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.